tonight was going to look like, um, and I, I prayed about it a good bit, and um, really just had to ask the Lord a lot to narrow some things down, um, to see if, you know, there's, every bit of me doesn't want this to be about my trip to Israel, and to, uh, you know, show a bunch of slides and talk about all that, and and pray and go home, because um, I believe that what we do here when we come together on Sunday nights is, um, you hear me okay? Um, I believe what we do is um, more important than a slideshow, and it's more important than just a report on um, my week, just like I don't ever want to come up here and say, let me tell you what I've, what I've learned this week in my time with the Lord, and it's not about that, because I believe God has some specific things for us as a church every time we come together, and so I didn't want it just to be something that was based on that, unless it's what God wanted, you know, and so I didn't want to make that assumption, and so I kind of went back and forth about maybe I'll just come in and just not talk about Israel at all, and because um, I'm still processing a lot of it, whatever. Basically, the Lord just kind of narrowed it down to, um, to this one specific um, place that we went to, and, um, and I believe he's taken my experience and our experience as a group there and has, uh, like, basically, like, pounded out something for this church and for tonight, and so um, I hope that you receive it not as, oh, the preacher shared about his trip to Israel tonight, but as uh, the Lord um, pulled one, one, at least one thing from my experience and brought it back for us specifically, and um, so let, let's let's pray together and make sure that uh, that that happens. Father, we're um, we love you, and we know that you are sovereign over all, and that there's nothing random about um, about you. There's nothing random about the our time together corporately. Every song, every prayer, every word, everything is very much intentional, and um, so God help us to to receive these things tonight. Um, in the, because we know that you have brought us here for a reason. We love you, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I'm going to show you a few pictures. Uh, and um, the first one is, uh, that's a mountain. Um, this is the, one of the first things I learned, Okay is that it's never a good sign when you pull up to a place and there's a cable car that goes to the top and your guide starts walking toward the mountain away from the cable car. Up in the top right-hand corner is a little dark spot. That would be where the cable car goes to. And we get off the bus and we begin to walk to the top by foot. And um, it was the most um, 
pathetically grueling thing I've ever done. Um, this mountain is called uh, Masada. And I don't know if you've, if you've ever heard of it. I'd never heard of it. Uh, I'll never forget it, um, that's for sure. And probably you won't either after we talk about what happened there. Um, the next slide kind of gives you some other shots. I did not take these. Uh, so um, this big flat thing, that's the top of the mountain we were just looking at. We would have been walking from back on the upper left uh, side back there of the mountain. So that's where we're going to, this big, giant, flat um, mesa plateau type deal. Um, on the, the far end, it's 1,300 feet high. Okay, so we climbed up the 1,300 foot side. We did not climb up the 300 foot side. Uh, but, you know, whatever. Uh, the next slide, um, uh, the next slide kind of gives you an, another idea of what's going on, sort of. Um, this is from, obviously, another angle. Okay, so just big, giant, flat. Um, I think we have one more slide. Okay, this, um, this is uh, basically a fortress that Herod the Great built, all right? And so these, these down here, these are different levels of his fortress where he had like pools and um, all this stuff on it. And so all these buildings and stuff like that, that's all um, like pretty original stuff. They reconstructed a few things, but um, okay, so we're just going to leave this up here so you can kind of have an understanding of what's going on. It's called Masada, and um, Herod the Great was uh, the king of the Jews. Um, he was sort of Jewish, um, and basically, you know, Rome was trying to control everything, and so he pretty much did like this. He went to Rome, said, uh, um, tell you what, I'm Jewish, sort of, and uh, make me the king, and I'll make sure you don't have any problems. And so uh, he became the king, and this dude was a huge egomaniac, and he built all these incredible um, structures all over the place. Well, Masada was like his like retreat center in case his own people started to revolt against him. He would have a place to go. And so it's you saw it, it's completely isolated, it's um, super high, super flat, so he basically fortified the top of this mountain, this big uh, plateau on top of this mountain, fortified it, built a wall all the way around it, and then just made himself this incredible palace where he could come as a, a retreat in case, in case they turned on him. And so uh, this all happened, uh, Herod, this is Herod the Great, he lived before Jesus was born, his son, um, Herod Antipas, or however you say it, was the one that was involved in Jesus' trial, okay, so this was his dad. Um, he had all these places all over the place, just, just a complete egomaniac, okay? So, um, so that's all, like, that's where this thing came from, all right? So this, the whole deal was just covered with uh, buildings and just whatnot. And so um, in 66, okay, A.D., um, was the, the first Jewish revolt. And um, basically, this trouble broke out. It's, it's a long story to kind of get into it. But basically, the Jews and the Romans began to fight. And um, it, in 70 is when Rome won. They destroyed Jerusalem, tore down the temple, all this kind of stuff. And basically, the, uh, the Jews, they just scattered out everywhere. And um, they went in all, all over the place. And there was a group that came here to Masada. And uh, um, they had... They, um, Previously, had uh, as soon as the revolt broke out, there was a group that came to Masada, over, overthrew all the Roman presence there, and basically just took the, took the top of the mountain and made it theirs. 
And then um, once Jerusalem was, was taken, some more came. And so about 900 and between 930-something, 960-something, they're not really sure, um, uh, Jews lived on the top of Masada beginning in about uh, from 66 to like 70. And um, for, for basically for three years, they lived on the, on the top of it. They made it their home. Um, in 71, 72, Rome realized that they were there, and they were kind of the last, uh, the last real problem that Rome was going to have. And so you had, they had, had taken pretty much everywhere else and scattered the Jews out, or they had taken them as slaves. And on top of Masada was like the last, uh, the last group that they really needed to conquer. And so they sent the 10th Legion, which was like the bad boys of the Roman army, and they, um, they were supposed to get to the top of Masada and take the city, but they couldn't do it. Um, the Jews held them off. They threw rocks at them, big boulders, you know. Um, it's just, you, you see, you, you just can't get to it. You don't just run up to it. And so as they're climbing, they're dumping burning oil on them. I mean, they're just, they're keeping them at bay. And so what Rome decided to do, they said, look, they, they can't come down. They can only survive so long up there. We'll just wait them out. And so they waited, and they waited, and they waited. And um, what they didn't know was that they had enough food up there to live for a while. And so they got tired of waiting them out, and um, they tried to negotiate, they tried all kind of stuff, and so their final solution was on the short side of the mountain, they decided they would just build a big ramp, basically. And uh, so they, they had all these Jewish slaves, and they had them, they put them to work building the ground up, bringing in rocks and dirt and whatever, and basically just like building a big giant ramp up to the top of it, and then they could just run in and get it to it that way. And there was nothing, there was nothing that the Jews could do about it. Um, they, uh, there was... It was the only plan that would work. And so you got 900 Jews living on the top, mostly women and children, they think. Um, and they had, had held them off for a long time. And they saw that the ramp was being built. And so they kind of knew what was, what was coming. And um, so I'd, I'd never heard this story before. And so we, we climbed to the top of the mountain. And after we stopped hyperventilating and catch our breath, uh, or maybe just me, um, we, we go and we sit in this, this area, and our, uh, our Jewish guide, Boaz, begins to tell us this story. And he um, said that, the, that once they knew that Rome was, was succeeding and that ramp was getting taller and taller and getting closer to the, to the fortified wall, you know, to the big wall, um, all the men went into the synagogue and had a meeting. And um, uh, actually, you guys, you can go to the next slide. Next slide is... Um, a picture of, of the, the seats in the synagogue, okay? So all the men go into this synagogue on these, these actual seats. This is, this is legit. Um, and they have a meeting to, de- to decide what to do. And uh, they had the, the leader who had basically brought the zealots there to the top and helped them take the top of the mountain and help them exist for all that time. The guy was kind of in charge. He talked to the men and he said, you know, he said, they're coming. It's not going to be long before they make it to the top and they take the wall. And um, you, you know what they're going to do because we've seen it. You know what they're going to do to our kids. And you know what they're going to do to our wives and to the widows and to uh, the single women who are not married. And you know what they're going to do to us. And the men sat on those seats and made a decision, and they decided that 
they needed to go home and to, uh, to kill their families. And so they left this room, and they each went back to their home, which is just a little room, basically, and talked to their families and explained what was going on. And they killed their kids, and they killed their wives, or they killed the women who were not married, they killed the widows, they killed their kids. And then all the men um, came back, and uh, it takes ten men to say uh, the final prayer uh, over a community as part of the Jewish law. And so um, they determined who those ten would be, and those ten killed all the other men. And uh, suicide is, is, a, is pretty much like a forbidden deal. And so um, the remaining ten men said the final blessing over the community. And they cast lots, and one of them uh, killed the other nine and then fell on his own sword. And so Rome built the ramp up and knocked down the, the gate, the wall, to come in and to find everyone dead. It was a huge... Uh, it was a huge um, failure to Rome. It was one of the, the few uh, campaigns that they didn't record because it was a big embarrassment to them. They found a woman and um, maybe a few kids hiding in a cistern. Um, and that's how, and they told the story. And that's uh, how um, it became relayed. And then Josephus is the one who uh, wrote it down and stuff. And so... Um, we're sitting on this mountain, listening to this story for the first time, completely stunned. And he takes us into the, into the room to sit on those steps, and he's like, these are the actual seats where they made that decision, you know. So before we went to the synagogue, we're sitting there, and Boaz is telling us this story, and we're all just like big-eyed, still, and... Um, He went on to explain some things that were incredibly profound to me, and that's what, what I bring to you tonight. Because um, I think probably like a lot of you, uh, I was sitting there thinking, what an incredibly difficult decision to make. And, you know, to me, it kind of makes sense, you know, because the Romans were pretty rough, and so I can understand, I guess, rather than have the Romans come in and do God knows what to your wife and your kids and all that, and right in front of you, you know, just all the horrible things. I, I guess I could understand um, I'd rather them have an easy death than a torturous death, you know. But Boaz went on to ex explain that this story is one that Jews take great pride in. That it is, um, it's not a great tragedy, mass suicide situation for them. It's one of great honor. And this is why. He said, he said, you have to understand two very important things about what it means to be Jewish. To understand why this story is a great story and why that decision for them to kill their wives and their kids and one another ultimately was not a hard decision 
And so, I mean, I was like, please tell me how that was not a hard decision. And so he said, there, there are two very important things that you need to know about what it means to be Jewish that will help you make sense of this. And so we're going to look at those two things tonight. Um, and I believe that they apply directly to where you and I are. Um, hopefully we'll never be in that boat. Um, and I don't want to weird anybody out, you know, by that. But it's very challenging whenever you hear uh, these two things. If you got a Bible with you, uh, we're going to first be in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy 6, there's a uh, pretty familiar passage of Scripture to people who have been around church for a while. Um, if you are not around church much, then, you know, then maybe this will be new to you or whatever. So I don't want you to think that's weird. Um, uh, I don't want you to feel like left out or whatever. It's just, if you've been around for a while, then this is something you've probably heard before, something we talk about a good bit here at the ring. Um, the first thing about Judaism and about faith in God that Boaz said um, helps us make sense of it is that the Lord alone is God. In Deuteronomy 6, um, verse 4 and 5, says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Verse 4, at the bottom of my Bible, it has some alternate kind of understandings of the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It says also, or the Lord our God is one Lord, or the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. Or the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Um, monotheism, uh, that there's just one God, is uh, one of the great pillars of the Jewish faith and also the Christian faith. Um, not only is it monotheism, that there's one God, but that it is the God of the Bible, that it is Yahweh, that, it is, that He is, is the one and the only one, uh, that He alone is who we worship and who we bow down to. And for a Jew, um, worse than having your wife tortured in front of you or your kids slaughtered in front of you um, would be being forced to bow down to the Roman gods. Because, you know, they worshiped all kind of stuff. and It was forbidden. I mean... The Lord, from the very beginnings of Israel as a nation, I mean, he was very clear about that. That I am the only one. I'm the one and only. And he's constantly telling the Israelites not to bow to the gods of, of, the, of the nations around them and not to, to worship anything but him. He alone is God. And so when they're talking about, and these men are sitting on these steps, they're talking about what's going to happen when Rome comes in, being forced to bow to another God was unacceptable to them. They would not, they just would not do it. And so for them, it would be better to die than to bow to another God. And according to Josephus, um, when the men went to the women and explained what was going on, the women offered their throats to be cut. 
um, they died willingly. But the men, although, although certainly a difficult thing to carry out, I'm not saying at all that it was probably flippant, um, to them it only made sense. Now, I think that's hard for us to be on board with, don't you think? I mean, I think it's hard for us to say, okay, uh, rather than be forced to say that Caesar is God or, you know, whatever is God, Baal or, you know, whatever, um, I would rather murder my family than do that. I would rather be killed. I'd rather be completely dead than have to do that. It's, I don't know about you. It's hard for me. That's a, that's a challenging point for me to get there. And it bothers me a little bit that it's so hard, you know, that my, um, that my love for the Lord is not um, all my heart, all my soul, all my, my might to the point where I would rather die than to worship something else. So it's weird, you know, because it's like, I don't really want to be to that point where I'm like, you can just kill me. I'd rather be dead than that. But it bothers me that I'm so not there, you know, at the same time. And so I was sitting there, and Boaz is saying this, and I'm like, that's the most deep thing I've ever heard. Not philosophy deep, but cutting to the heart deep. That devotion to the Lord would, would be that, that strong in someone's heart. And not, not just in like one person. Because we could probably all name somebody who'd be like, yeah, a person would probably take a bullet for Jesus. Probably no problem. But this entire group of men was like, that's what we need to do. Let's do it. And that the women were like, yeah, we've seen what the, what the Romans do. We've seen, we, there are Jewish slaves who were, uh, you know, building that ramp. Maybe, that, maybe they bowed and so they got to live and be slaves. Maybe some were tortured and then re- refused to bow, so they just killed them. I, who knows? But they knew what was coming enough to be willing to do that. So I really, I started, I was really just wrestling with that. So that led me to think about idolatry, because you know here, here that's basically what's being contrasted. You know, it's the Lord alone is worthy of all this, or you can bow to basically an idol. Whether it's a person or, you know, the sun gods or Baal or, you know, whatever, this graven image. And I started thinking a lot about idolatry and, and exactly what idolatry is. Because I think, I don't know about you, but like for me, idolatry is always, it's something, it's, <clears throat> it's either foreign or it's ancient, you know. Because the only time we read about idolatry is in the scriptures, and that was a long time ago. And so... Um, idolatry, it's, you know, it's foreign in that that's what happens, you know, in Asia, you know, in the 1040 window. It happens elsewhere. It doesn't, we don't have uh, idolatry here. The closest we ever come is maybe, like, honestly, like I was thinking about, when, when do I see graven images around, around Baton Rouge? Only time, if I'm at a Chinese restaurant and I'm paying. There's a little Buddha statue sitting there. That's about it. So I've always just thought that it was it was far away, you know, or it was really, really old. And so when we read that verse, we're like, the Lord alone, absolutely, yes, no other, no doubt, no problem. 
Don't struggle with idolatry at all. At no point am I paying at a Chinese restaurant, and I'm like, I want to worship this Buddha. What's going on? I want to bow. Never. Let's start thinking about what idols are. and I mean, idols basically are, you know, graven images, images that have been created that take credit for things that God has done or is doing. They replace him as the creator, the ruler, the provider, the owner of all things. And God very quickly in this whole process for me was like, don't go thinking that idolatry is far away and, or old. So, of course, I made the leap to every sermon I've ever heard about idols in your life, you know. Making, you know, your job an idol. Making money an idol or possessions an idol. Relationships an idol, you know, stuff like that. Because I was thinking about that and I was like, okay, maybe, you know, this will preach, you know. It's kind of, kind of how it works sometimes. Like, oh, yeah, that'll be good, that'll be good. And then, of course, like, just me, because I'm just kind of a jerk sometimes. I was like, man, everybody preaches that. I don't want to preach that. The guy was like, maybe I want you to preach that. I was like, okay. That's kind of how, how it works, you know, kind of back and forth, volley, volley. <laughs> and I just go back court, back and forth, so I'm too tired, and he wins. So, um, And so then, then I, I don't know. This is, this is kind of where I went from there, about these things being idols. And it's almost like God was like, no, 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 those things are not idols. Your money, can, your money is not an, an idol. And I'm not, please don't hear me saying this is like a blanket statement. Everything you've ever, you've ever heard is wrong, okay? I'm talking about for us, in the context of what we're talking about tonight, this is, this is what God has for us, okay? Um, let, me, let me explain it like this. We worship the Lord, and we worship the Lord in different ways. Sometimes we sing. Sometimes it's when, it's when we pray. Um, other ways that we worship when we're obedient, when we serve someone else, um, when we give of our money um, to the church that then takes care of needs and all that kind of stuff. Um, when I mean, there are just basically there are various ways that we worship our God. And the Lord brought me to a point where he said, those things that tend to be described as being idols, those are not idols. Those are ways that you worship an idol. So I was like, okay. And then it, it just kind of had one of those usual suspect moments where everything kind of just did like this. And I was like, what idol is worship that way. I was like, it's the idol staring back at me in the mirror. That that is idolatry. That all those things becoming idols are ways that we worship ourselves. And so idolatry is not ancient and it is not foreign. It is closer than close and probably it is more dangerous than a little Buddha statue or 
Baal in the Old Testament or whatever. Because it connects to the very first lie that was ever told to Adam and Eve when Satan said, you can be God. You can do that. You're smarter than him. You know what's up. And that's, that's a stunning thought to me. That I, can, that I am the graven image that takes credit for the things that God is doing and has done and tries to replace Him as provider and owner and ruler and creator. That I can be the created thing that is worshipped rather than the, the creator. And I don't like I don't like that thought at all, you know. But I think it's I think it's a pretty common boat that we're in as believers, especially in the United States. Because when you think about it, think about all those examples that I listed off and how we always have uh, my in front of it, you know, my money, my job. My wife, my husband, my girlfriend or boyfriend, um, my money, my car, my will be done, um, what makes me happy, um, etc. That when we do those things, those are ways that we end up worshiping the idol of self. Because we work hard and get a job and then get a raise and whatever, instead of God providing us with those opportunities to do that, you know. When we get our tax refund back, the first thing we think about is what can I buy, you know. And the, I mean, the example, keep going, I mean, just choose your poison, it's, it, is, it is what it is. And so you go back to the story of Masada, that here are these Jewish men and Jewish women who were like, no, 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 Um, it's better to die than to be forced to bow down to something else. And yet so much of, this is just me, so much of my personal existence is spent worshiping the idol in the mirror. working so hard on the outside and ignoring so much of the inside. Being at that point where um, it's more where the outside is more important than the inside. If I can keep everybody happy ever, then I can sleep at night. And so the Lord alone has a lot of implications to it. And it's easy for us just to check out and be like, oh, no, no, I only worship Jesus. I'm good. I'm good. But maybe sometimes our lives produce fruit that indicates otherwise. And maybe, maybe that's the point that God brought you here tonight in order to, to listen to and to process and something to really chew on and wrestle with, you know. 
Maybe it confirms some things he's been showing you, or maybe it is the starting point for things he's going to show you. Um, maybe you're just mad right now at me, whatever. Um, I'm not real happy with myself because it's so true about me, everything I just said. The second point um, that Boaz brought out um, comes from the book of Job. You just kind of go right in the scriptures. Um, you get to Psalm, you've gone too far. Job chapter 1. He said this, the second thing, first one is that the Lord alone is God. The second one is that the Lord God is sovereign over all. We talk about that a lot too. Trusting Him and all that kind of stuff. And, and he, Boaz referenced Job. Um, look at Job one twenty one. You know, the story of Job, basically, um, Job was this honorable man who worshipped the Lord, and Satan said, well, yeah, he worships you because you've given him everything he wants. But if you take away all his possessions and all that, that he will curse you. And God says, okay, fine, go for it. You can do anything you want to him, but you can't kill him. So um, his, all his family dies, and he gets this crazy skin boil issue thing going on and all this all this crazy stuff goes on and so his wife and his friends are like dude just curse God and die and this is what Job says in the midst of um, as much tragedy as I've ever seen anybody experience 121 he says this he says naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away blessed be the name of the Lord I had nothing when I got here. I'm not leaving with anything. If he wants to, to give me something, then he gives it. If he wants to take something away, then he takes it away. Regardless of what he does, I will bless his name. In chapter 2, verse 10, he's talking with his wife. Verse 9, she says, you know, curse God and die. In verse 10, he tells her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and not receive evil? Should we receive good from God and not evil? You tie that to the first one, and trust in the sovereignty of God is, is the second like, pillar that Boaz was talking about. He said that there at Masada, those men and the women there, they believed that it was God's sovereign plan for them to die. They believed that he brought them there to the top of that mountain, and that he sustained them, and that, that, that they were supposed to fight him off. And as Rome came in, they said, this, this is his plan for us. We're not going to take good only. He gives, he takes away, but his name is going to be blessed. To the point where they wanted to make sure there were still ten guys left to be able to say the final prayer over the community. They trusted in his sovereignty down to the last detail. And so for them, what they were doing, one, 
They weren't going to bow to another. And two, they said, this is God's sovereign plan for our lives. Blessed be his name. I think sovereignty is another issue that we really struggle with because we like good and we don't like the not good. And it's challenging to think that we need to be in a place where no matter what happens, we bless him. So it's challenged to me to think that I could one day go to the doctor and the doctor could say, uh, you have cancer. And that my response, maybe not initially, okay, but my response would be, I have cancer. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You know? Not say, oh, I want all the good and all the, I want all that, that all the good stuff, but God better not bring anything bad into my life. He better not bring anything that goes against my plan. But for God to basically tell you that maybe things in your life aren't going to pan out the way that you think they are. For us to say, well, you're the sovereign God, not me. Blessed be your name. God to say, you know what? Maybe you're never going to get married. And you say, blessed be your name. For God to say, you know what? Maybe you're never going to have kids. Blessed be your name. For God to say, you know what? Maybe, maybe, um, maybe you're just never going to have a lot of money. Blessed be your name. God to say, you know what, this, this struggle in your life, I'm going to leave it in your life. As much as you want me to take it away, I'm going to leave it there. You keep asking me to take it away, and you keep believing that I can, but I'm going to leave it there. Blessed be your name. You're sovereign over all. Be able to say this is really hard. Blessed be your name. For men to sit in a synagogue on the top of a mountain and say, I'm going to have to go home and explain to my wife that I'm going to have to slit her throat. But you are sovereign. Blessed be your name. Guys, that's, that's hard for me. I, and I want to be there. And it seems like kind of... Hard to not like say that without just being like completely cold hearted, you know? Like, I don't care. I don't think it was an easy walk from the synagogue to their homes for those men. But from what Boaz was saying, he said, for a Jewish man to be in that situation, it's the only thing that made sense. You accept God's sovereign will. I really wrestled with that too. And you know what it came down to for me? The reason why, what holds me back from being that kind of, uh, from having that kind of faith and trust in the sovereignty of God is because I have this idol in the mirror. And that idol 
doesn't doesn't really gel very well with this sovereign God stuff. Because sometimes the sovereign God deal makes the idol in the mirror kind of angry. It makes me want to run and to do whatever it takes to please the idol in the mirror instead of the one sovereign God who loves me and redeems me and has a plan for my life that is solely about glorifying Him. And sometimes that means bringing me into difficult things. And so both of those points, you know, it was, it was so weird to sit, to sit there on top of this mountain and you hear, yeah, Boaz telling the story just as a matter of fact. He was almost, he almost had an air about him that was basically like, I did the same thing. He's like, this is what it means to be the people of God. That you worship the Lord alone. You love him with all your heart and all your soul and all your might. And he is sovereign over all. And so you bless his name no matter what comes along in every detail. Regardless of what he does, his name is to be praised because he's God and we're not. And the truth is, as long as I'm worshiping myself and I'm myself taking credit for the things that God is doing and has done, and I'm replacing him as the owner and the creator and the ruler and the provider, as long as I'm doing that, there's going to be this, this big disconnect. And so what, so what the heck do you do, you know? See, all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's, there's some pretty consistent things that, that run throughout the Scriptures. Basically, God over and over again is saying, okay, I am the only God, and um, don't be influenced by the idols that are around you, and tear them down. All throughout Scripture, he's like, tear down the high places, tear down the, the altars to Baal, tear down all these things. One of the stops we made, we, we surround this big circle deal. It's probably as big as the middle section right here, and it was stones that were about five feet high, and it was in this, this perfect circle, and they were all you know, up, and we're like, gather around this thing. We don't know what we're there for. And um, our God was like, this is, this is where they worship Baal. This is a high place. This is an altar. It had a big statue on it. And um, long story short, basically they would start a fire around the statue that was made of bronze, and the statue would get really, really hot. And then um, they would uh, bring their firstborn, and they would give it to the priest, and the priest would take the baby and put it on the, the idol, and the baby would just roast so that Baal would be pleased and that it would rain. When it rained, they had crops and whatever. That's a little snapshot of crazy idol worship. And so they were told to go in, and not, not only to not be influenced by this stuff, but they're like, God told them all over and over again, you tear down these idols. You, you destroy them, you tear them down, but yet hundreds and hundreds of years later, we're all standing around this one that was not torn down for whatever reason. And so I was like, okay, if scripturally you're supposed to tear them down, how in the world do I tear down myself? That 
It seems weird. And God was like, well, it's kind of the verse I've kind of had the ring talking about off and on for the past you know, year and a half. It's in Luke chapter 9, verse 23. We're going to put it on the screen. Um, this is how you fight the idol of self. Jesus said it. If, you want, if anyone wants to come after me, let him, take up, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Every day, we deny ourselves. We deny the idol of self. And we take up the cross, which means you do whatever it takes to the point of death. And you follow him. You look like Jesus. All over and over in this week, we heard how important it was that disciples wanted to look like their rabbi, that they imitated their rabbi in every way. That's why so much of the New Testament, it's about identifying themselves with Christ and being just like Christ. Well, it's because he was the rabbi and they wanted to be like him in every way. And so this is, if you want to know, like if you're sitting here and you're like, I totally don't trust the sovereignty of, of God to the point that I need to, or if you're like, I worship myself constantly and I don't know where to start, this is where you start. Even if it's taking this verse and saying, okay, if this is the verse, if this is how you tear down the altars to ourselves, if this is where it begins, even if, if you're starting there saying, God, I don't even know what this looks like, but I want to start, then trust that the sovereign God is going to show you what that looks like. You deny the idol. You take up your cross and you live as he lived. I don't know, like I know I'm just being kind of serious tonight, and that's fine. I think the story is very serious. I think it's very challenging. The story of Masada is one that is, when Boaz was telling it, it was, he was full of pride. Not the bad pride, the good pride. Like, this is, I mean, they did it. They did it right. That's what faith is. That's what following the Lord is. Yet, it's hard to understand and it's hard to believe that it went down there in that way. I don't know about you, but I want to be, be in that place. I don't ever want to kill anybody, okay? So don't hear me saying that. But I want to be in a place where I'm like, you know, I'd rather die than worship anything, especially myself. And I want to be in a place where, regardless of what God does, my response ends up, blessed be his name. And if I want to get there, it starts with me denying myself every day and taking up my cross every day and following him every day. What's awesome about being a Christian is that the Spirit of God in us makes it possible. I don't know where this reaches into your life. That's a very personal thing. We're just going to spend a few more minutes together. We're going to sing a little bit. And we're going to pray about this stuff. And I don't want you to get too far ahead tonight of where you're going to eat afterwards or whatever. But I think these, these closing moments are very, very important. I think it's very intentional by God. I think God shapes them.
And we intentionally do more than one invitation song afterwards because I think sometimes you need to process some stuff. So I'm going to pray for us, and uh, we're just going to kind of roll into a few more songs. You just spend time with Jesus, okay? Let me pray. Lord, we know that you are sovereign over all and that you alone are our God. We believe that you are are very near to us tonight. We believe that you are always near to us. God, we believe that there are some things that you brought us here tonight to hear. Maybe it was a line in a song or something that was prayed. Maybe it was to see a jar full of dirt. Maybe it was something that was said. We know that's not an accident. So, Father, we're trusting you to bring us to the place that you want us to be. don't want to worship ourselves. We need your help to tear down that idol. Whether you're continuing the process or you're just beginning it, prayers that your will is done tonight. Thank you.